The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. The 11 disciples that remained with Jesus after the crucifixion, history tells us all but one of them suffered a martyr's death. Ten of the 11 disciples that lived with Jesus and were taught by Jesus so believed in the ministry and the message of their risen Savior that they were willing to die for their faith. The Apostle Peter, we're told, was crucified. When he got to his crucifixion, he felt so unworthy to be crucified and to be killed in the same way his Savior was that he asked his persecutors to hang him upside down. Matthew, the former tax collector and author of the first gospel, he was beheaded. Acts chapter 12 tells us that James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by the sword by Herod Agrippa. Thomas, Thomas, that that disciple we so flippantly call Doubting Thomas, so believed in his risen and revealed Savior that he was willing to suffer being thrust through with spears and baked alive in an oven rather than recant. And on the backs of the lives and indeed the deaths of these apostles, a revolution happened unlike anything the world has ever seen. Unlike anything the world will ever see again. Because these 11 men, 11 men with no high training, no skilled communication powers, nothing but their belief in their risen Savior and their willingness to die for it, they changed the world. Persecution didn't stop with the disciples. No, as you know, Jesus was crucified by the Romans. And for hundreds of years, the Romans continued to persecute the Christians. You've heard stories of Christians being fed to lions. They're true. You've perhaps heard stories of what are still called to this day Nero's torches, where the emperor Nero would take Christians still alive, bind them up, cover them with pitch, and burn them in his garden for light. But Roman persecution couldn't keep the church down. No, after hundreds of years of Roman persecution, the Romans suddenly and convincingly changed their minds, and Rome became a Christian empire. Well, that didn't end the persecution either. As Christianity spread, as Christianity went to the pagans, as Islam came about, persecution continued in regular form. Eventually, persecution started coming from the religious establishment itself. And Christians that wanted nothing more than to seek God, read the Bible, and to follow Him in the ways that the Holy Spirit led them, suffered violent deaths, being strangled, being tortured, and being burned at the stake. But that's all history, right? That's, that happened in the past. Today we believe in democracy. Today we believe in, as the UN Charter says, we believe in the right to the freedom of religion. So surely persecution is going down, right? Unfortunately, nothing could be further from the truth. Take a look at this statistic from 1996. There have been more Christians killed in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. Think about that for a second. More Christians were killed in the 1900s than in the 1,800 years leading up to the 1900s. That was 20 years ago, right? That was before Twitter. 
That was before Facebook came around. That was before the internet was glowing with human rights. Surely now persecution is going down, right? Take a look at this headline from Reuters in January. Reported Christian martyr deaths double in 2013. When you take 2012 and you compare it to 2013, martyr deaths double. How about these headlines just from recent months? Nigeria Christians mourn dozens killed in new Islamic attacks. Iran sentences church leaders to long prison terms. China removes church crosses in crackdown, five injured. Islamic militants killed dozens of Christian villagers in Central African Republic. Iraq's Christian survivors fear returning home. This is reality. This is reality for Christians all across this world today. This is reality right now for the body of Christ. And that's why we set aside today as the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And I would tell you this, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church is not just something Ambassador does. It's something the body of Christ does. Today, as we look forward to a time of prayer at the end of this service, you will be joining with Christians all over the world, gathering together to pray for those that are actively suffering persecution for their faith. As we look to a time of prayer, we're going to look at three things. We're going to take a, take a dive into the theology of persecution. What, what does the Bible say about persecution? We're going to look at persecution's practical reality, and then finally we're going to look at our response to persecution. John, chapter number 17. If you're not there, we'll be starting in verse 14, going through verse 21. John, the Gospel of John, chapter number 17. And as you turn there, let me give you a little background. In John chapter 17, Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. He spent the last approximately three years training his disciples, and the crucifixion is coming nigh. And in John chapter number 17, Jesus does something that, frankly, he expects of you and I. He goes to the Father and he pours out his heart in prayer. I would ask if you're physically able, if you join me in standing, out of respect for the, re uh, for the reading of God's Word. John, the Gospel of John, chapter number 17, beginning in verse 14, going through verse 21. This is Jesus praying to the Father about his disciples. Verse 14. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Let's pray. Father, we come together today so grateful for the chance that so many of us take for granted. The chance to gather around your word, 
to seek out its truths, to listen to the Holy Spirit, and to respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that You would stir our hearts this morning. Lord, would Your Spirit be present with us? Would Your Word be present with us? Would You sanctify us through Your Word? And then, Lord, would You show us how we can live our lives in reliance on that Word? God, would You stir our hearts to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted even now as we speak. Lord, stir our hearts not just today, but throughout the entire year to constantly have intercession on our lips and to pray for those who are fellow members of the body of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll start today by looking at the theology of persecution. By theology of persecution, really what I mean is, what, what does God's Word have to say about persecution? And frankly, it's a lot. Over and over and over, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's Word talks about persecution. And it all has one central theme. A central theme that I'm calling the promise of persecution. You see, persecution's not a maybe. God's Word tells us that persecution isn't something that we might encounter. No, persecution is something we must expect. Take a look at 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. This is not a maybe. This is not something you might run into later. My friend, if you believe in Jesus Christ, and if you live your life in accordance with what He says, you will be persecuted. Now, I'm not here to tell you that means if you're not in prison, you're doing something wrong. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that you will be killed for your faith. But it does mean that there is a substantial and ongoing conflict between the things of God and the things of the world. And if you are following the things of God, you will be hated by the world. Jesus said it right here, John chapter 17, verse 14. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. Now, I'm grateful to stand here and tell you, my friends, that this is not the end of the promise of persecution. It's barely the beginning. This, this is the promise of persecution on the temporal level. But the promise of persecution goes so much further. The promise of persecution starts in the temporal. In this life, you will receive persecution. But it does not stop there because as Christians, we have the hope of the next life. Take a look at Matthew chapter 5. In the Beatitudes, Jesus tells his disciples, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the second part of the promise of persecution. The promise of persecution, in fact, is not a story of, of, of terrors to come. It's not a sad story. The promise of persecution is the hope of inheriting the kingdom of heaven. That's the basics of the theology of persecution. Now that we've had a chance to look at the basics of the theology of persecution, let's take it one step further. If the Bible promises us persecution, it's likely we should be able to see it around us. Yes? So let's talk about the second part of today's message. The second point, if you're following along in your outline. That's this, the presence. The presence of persecution. It was promised in the Bible. And because it was promised in the Bible, it's present today. Now, as Pastor already mentioned, 
if you don't know it already, the freedom that we enjoy here in the United States of America is a historical anomaly. It's, it's an aberration. Uh, statisticians would call it an outlier. Let's put it in plain English, it's weird. The freedom that you and I enjoy is not normal. Now, it's not perfect. And I'd venture to guess that many, if not all of you sitting in this room, have suffered for your faith. Perhaps ridicule from a coworker, Perhaps rejection by a family member. Very real persecution. But the freedom that we have to come together publicly and worship Jesus Christ in this setting right now without fear of arrest is shocking over the history of the world. And it's not reality for Christians all across this world. In my work with Remember, I've had a chance to go to a variety of countries, uh, many, many countries that are essentially closed. Gone to countries like Burma, like Iraq, like Sudan. And I've had a chance to talk to believers who are living as a light in a very, very dark places. One of those uh, is a young man I'm going to call Abdul. Uh, Abdul uh, lives in Egypt. Uh, I'm changing his name to protect his identity, quite frankly. Uh, Abdul lives in Egypt. As a young man, he, he helped his father, who was a pastor, uh, minister in a, in a vibrant underground church in an impoverished Cairo neighborhood. His father's ministry was so effective that the Egyptian secret police felt it necessary to arrange an accident. And they hired a cabbie to run him down in the crosswalk. And they killed him. Very shortly thereafter, Abdul himself was attacked by an extremist with a knife who stabbed him in the shoulder and on the wrist, sending him to the hospital in imminent fear of his life. Thanks to God's grace, Abdul recovered. What do you think he did? You think he gave up? You think he worried about his, his life, his safety? No, no, he took over his father's church. And he pastors there today in this impoverished Cairo neighborhood spreading the word of Christ in spite of this. I could tell you the story of the Karin people. The Karin people are an ethnic minority in the country of Burma. They live on the eastern side. And due to the, uh, the work of Adoniram Judson, great missionary in the 1800s, they by and large came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, as a people group. And that conversion to Christianity put them directly in harm's way in the militantly Buddhist society in which they live. In fact, almost every year, the Burmese government sends its army every year to the jungles to seek and destroy the Korean people. It's grown so bad that the Korean people have taken to landmining their own villages to keep the government out. But that doesn't stop them. Now, when I was in Burma, in Korean state, we walked back through these jungle trails and we came out into a clearing where the most gorgeous church you'd ever see. And I've seen cathedrals in Germany. You walk out of the, the jungle and you see this church. And remember, these are people who live in mud huts with straw roofs. But they built their church out of teak. But such is the conflict in the country of Burma that while I was there, less than two years later, uh, that church was discovered and was destroyed. That's the reality of being a Christian in Burma. I can tell you the story of Sadia. Sadia is a widow that I met in Sudan. Her husband, while he was alive, was a pastor. He was sort of an itinerant pastor. He'd travel around on bikes to various villages, and he had about eight or ten different congregations, which is actually kind of normal for pastors in central Sudan. 
His ministry was effective enough that it caught the attention of the Islamic Janjaweed, the roaming militias that are there to sort of enforce Sharia law to the best of their ability. The Janjaweed showed up Sadia's home one day. They grabbed her husband, they dragged him out on the front porch, front porch, and they killed him in front of her and her children. Sadia relied on her husband for uh, his income. He was the breadwinner. He was the only breadwinner. She raised their children. So Sadia was forced to move to another part of the country, part of the country where Christianity is tolerated even less, if you believe it or not, where she works at menial tasks to barely support her family. Here's the amazing thing about these stories. Here's the incredible part of the persecuted church that I, I just... It's hard to communicate because unless you're there, it's hard to see it. But the stories of these believers doesn't begin and end with their suffering. In fact, it barely begins with their suffering. The suffering is so surface level to the love they have for Jesus Christ that the story of those that are persecuted is the story of eternal hope. Out of their suffering grows this hope of eternal life. Out even of their death grows the hope of life eternal. That, my friends, is the power of persecution. Persecution begins with the promise that we have in Scripture. Persecution is very real. We note its presence. But let us never forget the power of persecution. There are two parts to the power of persecution that I want to call to your attention. One was summed up by a gentleman by the name of Tertullian. Tertullian was a Roman, as you could probably guess by his Latin name. And he lived in about 200 A.D., right in the middle of the Roman persecutions. And Tertullian was an apologist for the Christian faith. And in one of his books called Apologetica, he almost taunts the Romans for their failure to snuff out Christianity by their persecution. Look at what he has to say. We are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and you frustrate your purpose. Because those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like men you revere, not like slaves or criminals. And when they find out, they join us. That's the power of persecution. The power of persecution is not the end, it's merely the beginning. In the deaths of the Roman Christians in the Colosseum, as they were being eaten by lions, they were merely planting the seed of faith to come. That's the first part of the power of persecution. The power of the gospel to take anything in this, that this world can throw at it and grow and give hope to those who have the gospel. The second part of the power of persecution comes from the very nature of the church itself. In Romans chapter 12, we're told that the church is a body. Indeed, the body of Christ. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're part of that body, as I am. And as believers all across this world, of any race, of any creed, long as they profess Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're part of this body of Christ. And that's why shortly after telling us that we're a body, Romans 12 tells us, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. 
If you think about it, you cut your finger, your whole body suffers. If you think about it, you eat a good meal, even though your stomach does all the work, your whole body gets the benefit. That's the body of Christ, and it's the second power of persecution. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 3. Applying the body of Christ to the situation we're talking about this morning. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3 says this, Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. My friends, we're the part of the body right now that, that's not suffering, <laughs> not like other Christians are. We're the part of the body that, that doesn't have the cut, but we're part of the body. The amazing thing about being a part of the body is that the unity that we have as believers propels us to greater things than we could have possibly had on our own. To use the mathematical terms, we are greater than the sum of our parts because together we can do something more than we ever could individually. Take a look back at John, our text. John chapter number 17 and the 21st verse. This is Jesus' prayer for His people that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. That's the power of persecution. It's the power of unity, and it's the power that gives us the ability to tell the world that Jesus was sent by the Father. It's the power of the gospel. We're going to close this service with a time of prayer, and pastor's going to come lead us in that. I, I hope that getting into the Bible and learning what it tells us about persecution has stirred your hearts a little bit. It stirs mine. And what I hope that you can do is take the time to bow your heads and pray. Pray with believers all across the world and pray for believers all across the world. Now, I want to end by saying this. Prayer's not a cop-out. Maybe you can do more. Maybe God's calling you to do more. Maybe God's calling you to go. Maybe God is calling you to give. But God is definitely calling you to pray. And if that's what God is calling you to do, it's not a cop-out. It's powerful. The book of Acts, chapter number 12, I already mentioned it once today because in verse 2, the apostle James is killed by Herod Agrippa. He's martyred. And Herod Agrippa discovers that there are people who like it when he kills Christians, so he grabs Peter and he puts him in prison. He chains two guards to Peter so that Peter can't escape. But what Herod doesn't know or perhaps doesn't care is that elsewhere in that city, Christians were praying. You know what happened in Acts 12? God sent an angel. The angel put the two guards to sleep. The angel released the chains, and Peter walked out of that prison a free man. You know what happened after that? He showed up at the prayer meeting, and they didn't believe it was him. Right? That's the power of prayer. God has called you to pray. And when God has called you to pray, He hasn't given you a task that doesn't accomplish anything. Remember that as we pray today. Remember that your words, your agreeing together in the power of the Holy Spirit, has the ability to accomplish miracles. And across this world, my friend, our brothers and sisters, they need miracles. Pastor, would you come closer?